0: We are going to continue this morning exploring the pathways to spiritual formation. And the Beatitudes are our roadmap. And Jesus is our guide as he bids us to come up the mountain and join him so that he can teach us his ways. And he's begun with the inward pathway, those things that must change within us as we are transformed to be more and more like Christ. And so it's there on that inward pathway that we continue this morning. Have you ever had that sense that something is just not right? Something's not right in this world. It is not how it was intended to be. Somehow we are off centre or off balance and things are not as God intended them to be. Children die of starvation. Nations war against other nations. Dictators embezzle the wealth of their country, leaving their citizens in poverty. The oceans are filling up with plastic, and the marine animals are filling up with plastic raped and beaten, and sometimes this occurs in their own homes where they should feel safe. Habitat is destroyed and species are moving rapidly towards extinction. Children are born into poverty or addiction, families break down, disease ravages the planet, bushfires roar through, communities destroying them, grudges are held. A child is born with a, a disability that is life-changing. The elderly are cast aside in the community. The innocent suffer while the guilty seem to go free. Something is not right. The world is not as it should be. And one of my first experiences of the extent of the brokenness of this world came as a young teenager. I used to spend part of my summer each year um, leading on camps for children who had experienced trauma or disadvantage. And those camps were truly eye opening and for me life changing. We operated with a participant to leader ratio of one is to one. And by the time we had made the bus trip to the campsite on that first camp, it was blatantly obvious why a leader-to-participant ratio of one-to-one would be required. During the day, we kept the kids as busy as we possibly could. We moved from activity to activity to activity. It was exhausting. And, uh, when, but when nighttime came, that was when we leaders were really hit with the extent of the brokenness in this world as we lay awake in our bunks, listening to the nightmares of some of these children play out over and over again in their sleep. And I recall one particular night at about one or two in the morning, I just couldn't take it anymore. And so I crept out of the cabin that I was in and I sat on the doorstep to the cabin in the dark there. just, And I looked across and the next cabin to me had the leader doing exactly the same thing. It was very, very confronting and very hard to listen to. And I remember just feeling sick that this is what these kids have lived through. And it play, they, during the day, they can sort of pretend and be distracted, but at night, there was no mistaking it. And I'm sure many of you have had that same feeling as you yourselves have confronted Um, evil in the world in various circumstances that you've been in. And you get that sort of sickening feeling in the pit of your stomach. It's the same sickening feeling when uh, someone you love has passed away and you are overcome with grief or when someone you love has been a victim of crime or when you've received an adverse diagnosis or you've watched someone you love get themselves caught up in addiction or perhaps even when you have just yourself made a horrible, horrible mistake. And we can experience this feeling on a macro level when we see what is going on in the world around us and we experience it on a personal level when personal tragedy strikes us or we involve ourselves in the suffering of others. But we also experience it on a micro level as the battle between our own intentions and our desires is played out in our lives. And the words of the Apostle Paul resonate with our own experience when he says in Romans chapter seven, verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. It's that battle between our sinful nature and our willingness to submit to the Holy Spirit's reign in our lives. And at the heart of our grief, whether we perceive it or not, is that innate sense that things are not the way that they should be. Something is missing. Something is out of balance. Something is terribly, terribly wrong. Ten-year-olds should be carefree and happy, not burdened or tormented by... Their own pasts. Death or sickness or disability or addiction or violence or disunity were not what was intended for us. We were created for life in a garden paradise, living in unity with our God. And in these various ways that I have just mentioned, we grieve the loss of that. Blessed. Are those who mourn, says Jesus, for they will be comforted. And Jesus could speak these words with all authority because he had himself lived them. He would know what it was like to mourn and he had experienced the mourner's comfort. And there are three recorded instances of Jesus weeping in the Bible. And each of them provide for us a valuable insight into what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are those who mourn. And the first of these happens in relation to Lazarus. Now Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. And Jesus was very close to all three of these siblings. And so when Lazarus gets sick, the sisters send a word to Jesus who is out of town and they tell him the one that you love is sick when Jesus arrives Lazarus has already been dead and in the tomb for four days John eleven thirty five says simply that Jesus wept many of you know the story well it is perhaps The greatest miracle of Jesus when he stands at the entrance to the tomb and commands Lazarus to come out and out comes four day dead Lazarus complete in his burial clothes. Many, like the Jews who were in the story, simply assume that Jesus was weeping because he's sad that Lazarus has died in the same way that any of us would weep over the loss of one we love but some of them says verse 37 said could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying and therein lies the clue to the nature of Jesus's weeping because the answer to that question of course is yes yes he could have kept Lazarus from dying Jesus wasn't weeping because Lazarus had died. He could have prevented that death if he had wanted. Indeed, Jesus was absolutely sure that Lazarus' sickness was not going to end in his death. Jesus knew that Lazarus would be raised from the dead. In fact, so confident of this fact is he that he mentions it four times, in the pre- preceding verses as he interacts with the disciples and with the sisters of Lazarus. John eleven four, 4, he says, This sickness will not end in death, no. It is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. John eleven eleven, he says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake him up. John eleven fourteen. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. And John 11:23 23, he says simply to one of the sisters, your brother will rise again. Jesus wept out of his compassion for Mary and for Martha and for the Jews who suffered under the burden of grief For Lazarus, death was not part of God's perfect plan for his creation and neither was their suffering on the account of their grief. Faced with their suffering and with their unbelief in the face of that suffering, the tears of Jesus are not over the death of his friend, but over what that death and their unbelief in the face of that death represent that something is not right. Things are not as they are meant to be. These tears of Jesus are an incarnation, if you like, the visible manifestation of God's grief over our sin and its consequences in our lives. Now, the raising of Lazarus was a prelude of what was to come in raising Lazarus Jesus would stare down and defeat death to give new life to one man. And he would go on to do that once and for all. But before then, there would be more tears. The raising of Lazarus captured the imagination of the crowds. They'd been eager for a miracle from Jesus, a miraculous sign. And when they got one, there was great excitement. And as Jesus approached Jerusalem, many of them came out meet him and they cut palm branches and they shouted Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord blessed is the king of Israel and as he drew near to Jerusalem he saw the city and he wept over it saying if you had known even you especially in this your day the things that make for your peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when the enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on top of another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Jerusalem had failed time and time again to heed the warnings of the prophets. And she would also fail to recognise her Messiah. And so his tears were once again that visible manifestation of God's grief over sin and its consequences. The final reference to the tears of Jesus is found in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 5, verses 7 to 8. And it reads, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And that submission led to eternal salvation for all who would obey him. Now it's most likely that this reference refers to Gethsemane, it would seem entirely reasonable that someone whose anguish was so great that their sweat turned to blood would also shed a few anguished tears as he prayed at Gethsemane. But we don't know that for sure. It could also refer to some time on the cross, or both of those times, or perhaps even some other times. But what we do know is the cause of those anguished tears. They came as he prepared to immerse himself fully in the consequences of humanity's sinfulness. They came as he prepared to take all of that sin upon himself and offer himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin. Up until this point, Jesus has mourned over sin and its consequences He has mourned the fact that the world is not as God intended. But now here, having been anointed with his own bloody sweat, just as Moses anointed Aaron and his sons with blood for their priestly duties, the whole scene intensifies as Jesus not only grieves over sin and its consequences, but he prepares to take it on. He prepares to stare it down and defeat it at the cross. In each of the recorded instances of Jesus weeping, it is our sin that plays the dominant role. He is grieved by a world that is not right because of sin. He is grieved by relationships which are substandard because of sin. He is grieved by the brokenness of humanity because of sin. He is grieved by our separation from God because of sin. And he is grieved because like Jerusalem, we are so far off kilter that often we don't even notice what we're missing out on. That's what Jesus means when he says, blessed are those who mourn. And we know something of the kind of grief he means because we know that gut-wrenching, deep pain that we experience through the death of a loved one. When our own world is suddenly and noticeably thrown completely off kilter, when things seem completely wrong in our own part of the world. And those of you who have been there will know what I mean. It's that kind of pain that festers like an open wound that aching longing or vast emptiness that can't be filled. And we know what Jesus intends as the source of our mourning when we look to his example. What grieved him should also be what grieves us. So we might say, blessed are you when sin grieves you in much the same way as the death of a loved one and as Pastor Glenn said last week, then heaven will applaud for you. Then you will know that you're on the right pathway because your attitude is being shaped into that of Christ Jesus. If sin doesn't really bother you much at all, it's time for a serious self-assessment because it should, because it bothers Jesus and on multiple occasions, it brought him to tears. Now, I don't mean here that you should get upset when you see some heinous crime committed on TV, or when you hear of an innocent child who has suffered, or when images of starvation flood your television screens. Everyone gets upset about those sorts of images. Well, most people do. Can you see the effects of sin in your own personal life? Do you share the Apostle Paul's frustration when he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Are you aware of that battle between your own sinful nature and your willingness to submit to the Holy Spirit's reign in your life? Do you grieve the effects of sin in your own life? Do you notice what sin does in your household and in your own interactions with other people? Do you have a growing awareness of sin or are you hardly even registering it? Now it's easy for us all in a church surrounding to say that sin bothers us a lot. We're supposed to be bothered by sin, we know that. But if you want a question that's a bit more measurable, or perhaps the cuts a bit closer to the bone, ask yourself, how much of a role does confession play in your prayer life? That will give you a reasonable estimation of how much you are grieved over sin and its effects. Those who are poor in spirit sense their great need and they recognise that need as spiritual. And they know that that need will only be met in relationship with Jesus. The journey of Christian spiritual formation begins at this point with the recognition of our own unworthiness and sorrow over sin. But it doesn't end at the point of our conversion. The more like Christ we become, the more we will perceive the holiness of God, but also the more aware we will become of our own sinfulness. It's a continuum, a journey of transformation. Thomas a Akempis, author of The Imitation of Christ, describes this journey of spiritual formation like this. The more spiritual a man desires to be, the more bitter does this, life, this present life become to him. Because he perceives better and sees more clearly the defects of human corruption. It all kind of sounds a bit bleak, doesn't it? Living in a perpetual state of grief and finding life more and more bitter, the more like Christ we become. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, Caroline, I don't want to live like that. Life like that would be miserable. Why would anyone in their right mind want to live like that? And the answer comes in the second part of our verse for today. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so it follows then that those who don't mourn won't be comforted because they don't feel they have any need for comfort. They can't sense that there's any problem or any need for comfort. And how sad that is because what great comfort we have already been sent and what greater comfort we have to look forward to when Christ returns or when we go to be with him in our death, whichever comes first. The Israelites knew all about the separating effects of sin from God. Sin had sent them into exile. And into that time, the prophet Isaiah spoke these beautiful words. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then the next verse, verse three, that would later be used by John the Baptist, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. And when Jesus began his ministry on earth, he also chose to quote from the prophet Isaiah. And he used these words, Isaiah 61, verses one to two, the spirit of the Lord is upon me Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. They are very well-known words, familiar words. Many of you would have heard them many times. But had he continued to quote the rest of that passage from Isaiah, he would have added these words proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance to our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning and the garment of praise instead of despair. When Jesus declared, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted, he was drawing upon all of that prophetic language and speaking to a people who knew exactly the type of grief that he was talking about and the type of mourning that he meant because it was ingrained in their history and it was expressed in the many laments from that time. To all who live in a strange land, Jesus whispers in this beatitude, here I am, your comfort is near. Israel's exile into Babylon lasted 70 years. And during that time, they became acutely aware of their own sinful state. When they returned to Jerusalem, their brokenness was evident. Nehemiah chapter 9 tells us that the Israelites gathered together. They wore sackcloth and heaped ashes or dust on their heads, which was an ancient ritual associated with mourning and great distress. They fasted, they separated themselves completely from all foreigners and they stood together and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their forefathers. And Nehemiah records that this corporate confession went on for a quarter of a day. Such was their great distress and their desire to put things right with God. Their brokenness was not in the fact that they were in great distress. It was not in the suffering that they endured in Babylon and it was not in the hardship as they labored to rebuild Jerusalem. Their brokenness was not even in their disobedience or repeated turning of their backs towards God. Their brokenness was to be found in their recognition of their own spiritual bankruptcy before God and it was displayed in their humility towards him, as they stood together in confession. You see, brokenness in the Bible is never a problem. Biblical brokenness is not about regret, or sadness, or even grief. Biblical brokenness relates to our realization of the effects of sin in our life. It is regret, sadness, grief, and utter despair over our sin and the barrier that it puts between ourselves and God. Brokenness is never a problem in the Bible. In fact, it is a requirement. It is part of the pathway to spiritual formation in Christ. It is one of those inward things that must happen as part of our transformation. And that's why Jesus includes it right up the front, near the start of these Beatitudes. If we are to become like Christ, we must see sin as he sees it and we must recognise our helplessness in the face of that sin without him. We must become aware of our own great need and we must be broken. We must be humbled and when we are, then we will be comforted. Psalm 34 verse 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted." and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Like Israel, we also live in a foreign land because we're part of the kingdom of God, and yet we live on a planet that is tainted by sin. The kingdom is now, but it is also yet to come. It has been established, but it has not yet been fully realized. And so sin remains a part of our experience and we must grieve its presence. We must recognise that this is not what God intended for us and we must reach that point of brokenness when we realise how spiritually bankrupt we are before God. That is when we are able to appreciate what the Lord Jesus has done in bearing our sin at the cross. That is when we are able to embrace the comfort of the cross and the ongoing comfort of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Is it possible to mourn authentically without turning into a truly miserable person? Jesus did. And I think that was possible for him because he understood that the current state was not the last word. And when we know that death is not the last word for our loved one who has recently passed away, there is great comfort in that. When we know that sin does not have the last word in our lives, there is great comfort. And we're able to strike a balance between mourning and joy. We know that sin will not have the last word in our lives because of Jesus. And as we are transformed more and more to the image of Christ, so our perception changes. We will perceive more of our own sinfulness, but we will also perceive more of God's holiness. So there will be more mourning and more need to repent as we appreciate the extent of our failure to love God and love others. But that will be outweighed by the wonder that comes from our growing appreciation of God's holiness and the joy that comes from repentance and our empowerment by the Holy Spirit to sin less and love more and to witness God's hand at work in the day-to-day things of our lives. You know some time ago the social committee here at Pathway organized an event for us. Many of you probably remember it. They called it Sparkle and Shine. Some people remember that. We shared a high tea together one afternoon and we dressed all sparkly and shiny and we celebrated those milestone birthdays that there were among us. And at some stage during that event gifts were given. And they were red eggs. Many of you remember, many of you probably received one. And I was one who received a red egg. And so I carefully transported my red egg home. And I pondered what is the appropriate thing to do with a red egg that is given as a gift. And these are situations that we sometimes find ourselves in when we are in a culturally diverse community such as we have here. I had never received a red egg before and I didn't know what I was supposed to do with it now the Celtic in me knows what you do with colored eggs you throw them off a hill and so I wondered if that was what you were supposed to do with a red egg in Ireland when you receive colored eggs it's Easter time and you go and find a bunch of friends and you take your colored eggs and you launch them off a hill and the one who gets their egg the furthest before the shell breaks is the winner. So I wondered, should I be contacting other people who received a red egg so that we can all go and launch them off a hill? But it wasn't Easter and we weren't in Ireland and I was not entirely sure if my red egg was hard-boiled or if it was still raw. So perhaps launching it off the hill wasn't the best idea. And the practical part of me thought, I should just break the egg. Why waste it? Break it and if it's hard boiled, mash it up and put some mayonnaise and make an egg sandwich. But the more culturally aware part of me said, what if the person who gave it to me is offended that I broke the red egg? Maybe you're not supposed to break them. I didn't know. So I decided that the best thing to do was to hold on to it for a little while. Perhaps I should put it in the lounge room. Maybe they're designed to be looked at. Maybe you put it on your mantelpiece and you look at your red egg. But the scientist in me thought, a red egg in the lounge room is gonna start smelling and it's not gonna be very nice. So I decided to just put it in the fridge and give it a few days and maybe I would decide what to do with the red egg. So I put it in the door of my fridge And a week later it was still staring at me from the door in the fridge and I was still none the wiser about what do you do with a red egg? What's the appropriate thing to do without offending someone? Well, that was June, 2019. (laughs) My red egg is still staring at me from the door of my refrigerator a year and a half later and I still don't know what I was supposed to do with them. Now someone in first service told me that if someone gives you a red egg it means that they're pregnant and that the baby's a hundred days old. (laughs) And I'm looking at Sharon, I don't think that was why she gave out the red eggs. Today is the day, the egg is going to go today because The only thing this egg is likely to do now is kill me if I eat it. Because an egg that is never broken is ultimately destined for only one thing, right? It's going to go rotten. Eggs are a symbol of life. New life emerges from them or they provide a source of nourishment for another form of life. And neither of these things can occur if the egg is never broken. An egg that is never broken can never reach its full potential. And so it is with us. For growth and transformation to occur, we must arrive at that point of brokenness, that point at which we realise our own spiritual bankruptcy and accept the comfort that is ours through the saving work of Jesus and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Comfort comes to those who mourn, wholeness to those who are broken. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? God of all comfort, forgive us, Father, for being so content in this world that most of the time we just fail to notice sin except when it jumps up and hits us in the face. Father, we want to be more like Jesus. We want to know him more. And we know that being more like Jesus will require us to see sin as he saw it and to grieve over it as move us and break us. Father, may there be no hesitation in us because we rest on that promise that those who mourn will be comforted. Thank you for Jesus. And the comfort is it is to know that our sin will not defeat us because Jesus has already dealt with it. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who is always present with us, helping us to live joyfully as kingdom people. Father, may we mourn well, but may we also live well. May our lives be a joyful reflection of the comfort that we have received from you. Amen.